Howdy folks, Ryan here. Uh, once again, we've got an episode that we recorded uh, several weeks ago before the coronavirus hit. This one is about the effort to stop the Olympics from coming to Los Angeles in 2028. Uh, so it's a little bit off the news peg, as they might say in the business. But I think it still makes uh, some some good points in there there are some good arguments in the discussion that are pretty relevant to uh the current situation um especially the the kind of idea of disaster capitalism that has characterized a lot of olympic bids over the years uh the idea that this is a kind of opportunity for you know rich people to make a lot of money and I think we see that today in this um, effort to sort of relax the coronavirus isolation things in this sort of desperate effort to keep the economy moving. Uh, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's the same uh, kind of instinct that I think we see from people who can only, you know, really uh, view society through the lens of profit and, you know, forcing people to work and, you know, making a quick buck. And so, you know, uh, I think it's relevant in that sense and also maybe a little bit of a nice distraction from the endless uh, parade of horrible news that is gripping our lives and making us all depressed. So hopefully this is a nice, uh, relaxing you know, somewhat, uh, at least bit of a distraction to, uh, you know, occupy, uh, the next hour and change. So without further ado, let's uh, get started. Welcome back to left anchor. I'm Alexi, the Greek, and I'm Ryan Cooper welcoming to the show, uh, Anne Orchier, who, um, is here to talk to us about something maybe slightly outside of our traditional wheelhouse, which is the um, upcoming, maybe, possibly, uh, Olympics in Los Angeles in 2028. And um, Anne is part of a, 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 a movement organization that is trying to make that not happen. So um, welcome to the show, Anne. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so... Um, you know, it's it's a big topic, uh, but I thought, you know, maybe you could just start out with giving us, you know, kind of the capsule case against, you know, the, this this happening. Because I think, you know, a lot of people think of it, they think, oh, the Olympics are nice. Uh, you know, I like to watch the athletes and so on. And there's some good, you know, some good shows there. And Michael Phelps, wow, didn't he win a lot of medals? So what's, what's the argument against it? And for- as a Greek, Ryan, of course, I have an attachment in some ways to the Olympics <laughs> um, because of my, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but no, please tell, tell us why people should, this should be on their radar and, um, and why the, the no Olympics movement, you know, globally is, is um, becoming more and more important. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I mean, so the short answer is uh, we hate sports, we hate athletes, we hate fun. <laughs> fun, fun is um, bad. Leftists yeah, against fun. Yeah, we hate fun. parties. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the real answer is 
basically what we've seen happen both in our city of Los Angeles, which ho has hosted the Olympics twice in 1932 and 1984, um, as well as cities around the world historically that have hosted as well as ones that are slated to host in the near future, um, including Paris, who we work really closely with. Uh, you know, the Olympics are basically a real estate speculation machine uh, and police militarization machine. They're kind of a Trojan horse to not create, but um, essentially accelerate those the presence of those two things in any city. Uh, you know, we we often compare the Olympics to kind of the framework of um, disaster capitalism and states of exception, where uh, you know the ruling class will use fear, terror, uh, significant events that, you know, create a sort of panic and fear to establish new normals um, of inequality, of policing, of pretty much whatever it is that serves their own class interests. The Olympics do the same thing, but with this giant party. Uh, and, and sometimes overlapping, too, with that state of exception, particularly since September 11th, the Olympics uh, have been used you know, the, the sort of specter of terrorism around the Olympics is used to enhance that, you know, militarized, uh, like supercharged policing element in cities, which then doesn't go away after the Olympics leave. Well, that's, that's blowing my mind a little bit insofar as states of exception and, and war um, tend to be the things that like traditionally Olympics were historically trying to avoid is like, instead of destroying each other's nations, we'll compete in this way that doesn't end up killing each other. But so that's fascinating that it's become yet another site through which um, those kinds of harms can devastate areas. Yeah. And actually what's interesting too, is if you, if you get into the, um, even the sort of like nerdier history of the games from a more, you know, looking at the actual spectacle of it, um, the, the way that we experience the games, like a lot of the, uh, aesthetics and rituals, um, and kind of pomp and circumstance around them has been framed as a sort of ancient thing. There's a lot of mythology around how the games were established, but really most of what we experience as the modern Olympics were created by Adolf Hitler uh, and were created by the fascists and Nazis, not as a way to bring nations together, but really to heighten nationalist tension. Hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, Hitler sounds like a bad guy, uh, but but speaking heard of him. <laughs> speaking maybe a little bit more concretely, you know, you say the uh, Olympics they've held them before in Los Angeles, and uh, you know one might think, okay, well maybe you still have that stuff lying around and you won't have to build a bunch of stuff. But I would guess that's not true, and that they're planning on building a bunch more crap. Um, a, a, is that a correct supposition? Well, I, one thing that we're sort of trying to, um, to, you know, to push in our own organizing and messaging is the idea, you know, the white elephant stadiums get a lot of press, uh, and rightly yeah. so in a lot of ways they are, you know, they're, they are very symbolic, um, and, and these very like visual, uh, images of what the Olympic legacy actually is, you know, it's decay, it's broken promises, it's waste. Um, but I think, well, there's two things. Um, one is that 
those stadiums, there's this idea that the stadiums are going to waste, uh, you know, that, that they weren't sort of well-planned. Um, but the reality is, is like the intention of building those stadiums is never that they're needed for the Olympics. It's always part of the larger plan to reshape the city, to push out poor communities. If you look at where stadiums typically get built, uh, it's, it's not to serve the needs of sport. It's to serve the needs of real estate developers. So in that sense, the stadiums are always put to their intended use, which is to push out and banish poor communities um, from areas that are targeted for real estate development and gentrification. Yes. So, so the 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 stadiums and and I assume there's a lot of other stuff that 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 ends up getting you know planned as part of the Olympics uh, uh, effort. Um, that is. Uh, you're saying a sort of Trojan horse and you know, a way to, to to pick out like, you know, some working class neighborhoods or some poor neighborhoods or places where, you know, maybe there are some homeless people and, and just bulldoze everything and put in some high rises, some, you know, as a, as a, at a sort of like broader redevelopment strategy that, that would, would I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, we're, we're probably talking about like billions in public subsidies to build this thing. And so then, oh, yeah. the, then the private real estate interest can sort of just engross all the resulting um, asset price inflation that comes out of the, uh, you know, the whole scheme. Is, am, I getting, am I getting that part of it right? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Right on the money. Great. Well, so can you tell us, you know, what what are the specific, like some actual communities that are that are sort of be, uh, under the um, threat of displacement as part of this, uh, uh, the you know, planning stages or or what have you? Sure. So um, the the two that are sort of under most immediate target right now are low income renters, um, and again, this is our claim is not and has never been that the Olympics create <laughs> these conditions. It's that they exacerbate them, right? So low-income renters are continuously under target uh, in Los Angeles and pretty much, you know, pretty much everywhere. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, one of the sort of quote-unquote selling points of this current Olympic bid is that we don't need to build anything. But again, nobody ever needs to build anything for the Olympics. That's not the reason people build things. Uh, and you know, well, the hang, main... well, wait, well, hang on a second, though. It, that's a that's a new thing that I've heard. Is is that really the case? Could could you just do the Olymp like like if you just say Los Angeles, we're going to have it here. We're not going to do a damn thing. We're just going to use our existing infrastructure. Would that be possible? That's what they're saying. But it's also sort of it's a little bit sneaky because uh, they they're currently investing in several new stadiums. Um, so in some ways the Olympics are being used to like retroactively justify all of these stadiums that they're building that nobody asked for, uh, that nobody wants in the city. Um, right. So but it, speaking in that as a hypothetical, you know, if, if you just didn't do any of that stuff and, you know, just using whatever LA had, you know, what, five, 10 years ago or whenever, you know, before they put any of that stuff in, could, could that be like, as a sort of physical matter, could you do the Olympics with what you got? Um, potential in terms of like venues, yeah. but yeah, I mean, like, I don't, all of that stuff is so black box and like defining what the need is like the, the yeah. IOC, the people who are in charge are continuously shifting what 
the quote unquote needs of the Olympics are in order to meet the demands of real estate speculation. Right. And so what we're seeing, what we're seeing in Los Angeles in particular is they really focused on like the sporting infrastructure. First of all, a lot of that sporting infrastructure that they've talked about is over a hundred years old. It's stuff like the, you know, the Coliseum that was built for the 1932 Olympics. So, you know, the likelihood as soon as the bid was, you know, awarded, people started talking about some of the stuff in Long Beach and how it's like actually not right. They're going to need to do extensive repairs on things. Um, there's, you know, looking at what's happening in California with wildfires. One of the Olympic venues was the site of one of the huge wildfires recently. Um, so the, you know, that question of will we have everything that we quote unquote need by 2028 is a huge question mark. Um, and then the other issue is that they're in particular pretty much as soon as the, you know, the, <laughs> the bid was rubber stamped by city council, the city council members started using it as an opportunity to, uh, to drive hotel development. So that's the big thing that they're saying, oh, we need to build all of these hotels for the Olympics. Um, if we don't build these hotels, you know, we're, we're facing a really serious, quote unquote, hotel shortage crisis, um, <laughs> which is so complete. I can't tell you how insane it is to sit in a, you know, in a city government <laughs> room with elected officials while there's usually like 100 people, unhoused people sleeping on the lawn of City Hall at any point talking about how they they absolutely urgently need to demolish these buildings where poor tenants live in order to create hotels so that in 10 years we will have enough hotels for tourists. It's pretty perverse. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, I think part of what Ryan's questioning is um, trying to get at is, I mean, I think this is really educational for us because our idea going into this conversation is that you know, I think what maybe what LA is trying to avoid is a traditional critique that um, the investment in new venues and, and all these um, kind of real estate opportunities that are specific to one particular uh, Olympic event, th- the fact that those buildings aren't then used thereafter makes it a bad investment and it's a kind of a one-time influx of revenue uh, and sidestepping all these issues of displacement and, and all the other terrible things we've been discussing. Um, the focus maybe on, on criticizing the Olympics has been because those buildings aren't used again. And so it's kind of a, mm-hmm. wa- a waste of money. And, and so part of, I think, what you're pointing out is is that's not really the, the real threat or the, or the major danger of, uh, of what this is about. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the, the sort of mainstream media, uh, you know, critique of the Olympics and more like, you know, neoliberal politicians critique of the Olympics has been really focused around venues, uh, and budget. Are these going to go under or over budget? Um, and at this, I mean, it's not even a question that they're going to go over budget, (laughs) but, what we started doing from day one is we basically said out of the gate, like, we don't care if you build or don't build a single thing. We don't care if this goes over or under budget. Our priorities are displacement, um, police militarization, diversion of resources from the things that people in the city critically need and the erosion of democracy. Can you talk about the police militarization a little bit? Because I think we've got a sense for the neoliberal uh, kind of nepotistic collaboration with real estate speculators and and how um, displacing people to kind of profit for these private plutocratic interests is is an obvious threat to democracy and and is a a great social harm. Um, why, uh, Why does the police get more militarized as a result? Yeah, so the Olympics have served um, pretty much since 
at least since the 60s. Uh, well, actually, no, probably earlier, probably really since the 30s, since 36, the Nazi games as a pretext to, first of all, to to just heighten nationalism, um, which always carries with it, you know, national pride couples with national security. Uh, and there's just mm. the idea that it's this big thing and that there's, you know, we have to protect, we're sort of showing the world our city, but that means we also have to protect it. It's under threat now. Uh, all of that, you know, with the the very real, you know, terrorist incidents that happened in Munich, that became even more heightened after September 11th, that became more heightened uh, in the U.S. in particular, the Olympics are classified as an NSSE, which stands for National Special Security Event. Uh, and that's used, that is specifically a designation for events that, you know, quote unquote, might be targets of, uh, of you know, domestic or international terrorism. Um, and that mandates something called a unified command between federal, state, and local law enforcement. Um so, which is completely, am I, can I ask, am I allowed to curse on this? Yeah, of course, curse? please. Okay. Fuck yeah. Um, it's so fucking terrifying. The NSSE is so fucking terrifying. Uh, why, why? Just because of, of the, the way that they can make major decisions without any kind of uh, checks or, or what's the danger? It's it's such a black box. The the things that we know about this particular NSSE, um, well, I guess I should back up and say the first the first time the Olympics were classified as an NSSE were in the Salt Lake City 2002 Olympics, so a year after September 11th. For those games, there were more troops on the ground in Salt Lake City than there were in Afghanistan, which the U.S. had just invaded. Wow. Goodness. Yeah, I guess, you know... Could never know about those Mormon insurgents. I guess the <laughs> Mountain Meadows massacre that wasn't so long ago. Um, the NSA also, um, a, a like whistleblower from the NSA also revealed, I think a year or two years ago, that you know all of these practices that have sort of come to light in the last few years around, uh, you know, NSA and you know, and government agencies like that spying on people uh indiscriminately that that practice really started with the uh with the salt lake city olympics that the nsa used that as a testing ground to do indiscriminate surveillance of utah residents yeah um so you you know you've talked a bit about how uh you know that this is gonna for whether it's needed or not of a a vast expenditure of public funds here, you know, subsidies from the city, maybe the state or the federal government. Um, but meanwhile, uh, I would guess that Los Angeles has some critical um, infrastructure or, or service needs that are uh, for the current population that aren't being met. Um, uh, I've heard especially about the homelessness is a very mm -hmm. serious problem there. So could, could you talk about like maybe some better uses for presumably billions and billions of dollars of, of subsidies? Social housing period. Nice. <laughs> like Ryan knows a thing yeah. about that. He, he wrote a policy paper on social housing. That's right. Oh, amazing. Yeah. We desperately need social housing in LA, the, our housing crisis, which is really, we need to start reframing as an eviction and displacement crisis. It's the housing crisis implies that we don't have enough housing. And like, really right. we do, it's just not the right kind of housing. Um, 
So yeah, we have this displacement crisis. It's a displacement crisis, eviction crisis, banishment crisis, gentrification crisis. Um, and yeah, it's in terms of what we would need funding for. I mean, there's so many things too, like education, healthcare, uh, so many California and Los Angeles in particular, the income inequality is just staggering. And all, I mean, really all forms of inequality. We have 59 billionaires in this city and almost 60,000 unhoused people. I have, a, I have an idea for a displacement policy that might <laughs> rectify that. You know, but, but you can you can fit a lot of uh, a lot of people into all those homes those billionaires own. Oh yeah, yeah. Even just the number, the amount of like land in Los Angeles that's dedicated to golf courses on the West Side. Uh, yeah, you could you could easily. I mean, and we also have. I think it's something. I can't remember which, you know, because L.A. is there's L.A. County and then L.A. City. So I always forget which one is county and city. But we have something like, I think, four vacant units for every unhoused person in L.A. So there's just like tons and tons of, of apartments that are sitting empty uh, and just, um, you know, to, uh, there are some other estimates. 60,000 is sort of the conservative like point in time estimate. So that's on any given night. But over the course of the year, it's probably it's closer to 100,000 or maybe even more than that. Um, and yeah, there's just all these empty units that are sitting there making money for investors all over the world. And then like 100,000 people who need homes, who are sleeping on pavement, three people a day die who are experiencing homelessness in LA. It's it's pretty bleak. Jesus. How about the uh, the subway? I, I've, I'm not too familiar with the LA public transit, but I do, I do know it was a trolley city back in the day and they have been working on, on some kind of a subway, right? Yeah. And that's actually, that's like another one of the big Olympic myths. And I'll say that I, uh, I'm not reliant on public transit. Um, I used to be, I, when I moved here, I'm from New York originally and I didn't drive. So I exclusively took public transit for the first few years I was living here. And now I'm about 50, 50. Um, and yeah, I think public transit is fantastic. Uh, I'm really grateful for, I, I live in a pretty transit dense area, uh, and I'm grateful for my ability to get around on public transit so much of the time. I would love to see it expanded. Um, the Olympics are not the vehicle to do that. <laughs> um, it's yeah, like hearing there's this plan 28 by 28 that they had just seeing how quickly the promises have fallen apart from the beginning to now is is kind of unbelievable, like how quickly things unraveled mm -hmm. is that was one of the big selling points, too. And then pretty quickly, even the like transit nerds who are very centrist, like don't agree with us on a lot of things are like, oh, this plan is a mess. Like this plan is not so quickly. It's just become like. And, and we've seen this in other cities, too. It's like any transit that does get built is prime. The primary goal is to displace people. It's to cut through poor neighborhoods and like use it as a pretext to banish people or to um, to basically like ferry rich people from one rich neighborhood to another rich neighborhood so that they don't have to like see or pass through any poor neighborhoods. Yeah, I uh, this I think is a sort of ongoing concern in New York with the AirTran or whatever, mm. like Cuomo wants a, a line that would go from JFK straight into Manhattan. And right. it's, and I, and from, from what I've read, uh, a, a lot of, not just in LA, but around the world, you know, that's sort of 
public transit expansions, quote unquote, that go along with the Olympics or World Cup tends to be that sort of thing where you're going from the airport to the stadium or something like that and not really thinking about the broader, you know, needs of the city where people are going to be living like, you know, permanently. And um, I mean, the one in New York from is slower, the way it's designed, slower than the existing uh, public transit, you know, which is like taking a bus and then a train because the design is so shitty and Cuomo knows so little about, um, you know, uh, how to design any kind of or maintain any kind of uh, subway system. So that is not too surprising to me. You know, that that's not a sort of art, like general architecture you want to hang your sort of transit plan around is like one event, you know, that'll happen for like a month. Just senseless. I have a question about uh, leftist socialist strategy here, because on the one hand, there you know are many no Olympic uh, groups, right, working to prevent their particular site from being chosen, right, and preventing uh, all the harm that would come to to the city that's agitating against those forces. Um, and yet, like, and this reminds me of kind of uh, union battles and so forth. Um, if you win and it doesn't come to LA, doesn't that mean that some other no Olympic site loses and they actually have to absorb the heart? Like as a leftist, how do we think through this problem? And I know that you want to get rid of the Olympics presumably entirely, but how do you think through solidarity with, with that kind of issue? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's something that I think we had seen when we were studying and kind of like looking at successes and um, missed opportunities and past Olympic movements. Um, I think there are a few things. And the first the first and most obvious one is like we've always since day one had a transnational focus and made that really clear. This isn't we want to kick the Olympics out to go somewhere else, um, which is there's a lot of like fascists and nationalists who will often take that position um like we get that the olympics are bad and we don't want them in our city but we don't they should just go destroy another city uh and so we've made transnational organizing and transnational solidarity just like a really key central component of our work this uh this past summer we went to tokyo for i think really what was like the biggest and kind of most formal and like planned out in advance transnational summit of anti-Olympic organizers. And so we were in Tokyo um, and obviously there, it was us, there were folks from Tokyo there clearly uh, also folks from Nagano, um, from Kyoto, uh, from, from different other, few other different parts of Japan, folks from Korea, uh, folks from Paris, uh, folks from Rio, folks from London there were just really, oh, someone from Jakarta that's considering a bid. So really working on bringing people together to strategize how do we how do we support each other? Um, how do we continue to send the message that we're not we're not just trying to push these out of our city and onto another city? Uh, it's really about stopping this machine. Uh, and something that we said from the really early on too, is, you know, the sort of the ruling class that is pushing these games onto our city and organizing, they're all organizing together. So we need to be organizing together. If we want to credibly stop these, it's much more powerful for us to be working together, um, than it is to just try to push them out alone. Uh, and then I think the other factor, you know, that, that, kind of facilitates this transnational organizing is all of those groups that I mentioned and that we're working with, you know, there have been a lot of, um, 
anti-Olympics groups around the world that have focused on more of the infrastructure and budget issues. And in a lot of cases, they have been successful at kicking the games out. Um, but what's a little bit different, I think, about this, a lot of the groups that are rising up now is we're not as focused on their, those issues. We're really focused on on the issues um, that are impacting our cities and in particularly impacting the most poor people in our cities, whether or not the Olympics come, right? So like homelessness, right. displacement. Uh, and so that that also gives us the conditions to continue organizing with each other after the Olympics leave or after we successfully kick them out. It's like the activist gateway drug to learning about other ways to be activists against all these harms that are continual. And this is just a, yeah. a particularly bad um, you know, opportunity for the, the fascists and the neoliberals to, um, to perpetuate and exacerbate, as you said, that these harms that are continuous. Um, that's awesome. I, I, I know that Ryan wants to, to mention this, I think, because he had this idea and we've talked about this in the past before we even knew about the, the new Olympics um, movement, um, of if you were going to keep the Olympics and you just had it say in, in Athens and like Norway for summer and winter, and that was it. And it was always in those places. Could that be a way to avoid a, a lot of this? If how much of it has to do with this kind of real estate speculation and the bidding and, and all of the things that go into kind of the prospect of a new arrival in your city, uh, would, would Ryan's solution be, be tenable or, or would that be a problem also? Um, I think w one thing that question comes up a lot, and I think the important thing to consider there or sort of, I guess, state is that in terms of the process of exacerbating these harms, it's not a question of where it's a question of who, you know, who's in charge, who's pushing this. Um, and similarly, it's like, you know, as long as the IOC is in charge, as long as the right. real estate speculate, the same people are driving it. That's Good. not so the solution. Under socialism, we can still have the Olympics is what you're saying. This is what I wanted to get at. Yes, actually. <laughs> okay. And we have, we have a great video on our website. If you go to noolympicsla.com slash videos, we have a ton of videos, but there's one in particular that I love to trot out. Um, and when this question comes up, uh, it's called, I didn't come up with this title so I can um, sort of cleverly display it uh, as if it were my work, but it's, it's not. Um, it's called Swolshalism. <laughs> and it's kind of like a, a short, I always have a hard time saying it too, but I think it's delightful. That's um, great. It's, it's basically a brief history of, um, of leftist and communist alternatives to the Olympics. Um, which has come up periodically. So, you know, I mentioned a few times earlier the 1936 Nazi games, um, which were embraced by liberals and progressive capitalists, but uh, but a lot of communists as a protest to the games and saying specifically, like, as long as fascists are hosting these, we're not going to participate. Uh, there was a communist kind of like anti-Olympics international sporting event uh, that I think had more people at it than the 1936 Olympics, uh, in Barcelona. Um, and so there, there actually is a really like long and storied tradition of these types of events taking place that really are focused. <laughs> like if you look at how they operate without that land speculation piece, without the corporate sponsorships, like it really is about celebrating athleticism, um, and celebrating sport, uh, and See, celebrating. We have more fun, right? Like we have better totally. sex. We're going to have, everything's going to be better under socialism. It's all better. <laughs> I just want everybody it, to be clear. Well, that's always what's so weird too. When it's like when people, I mean, not weird. I get like these, these myths are really powerful. Um, the, the, 
propaganda that goes into pushing the Olympic mythology is really extensive. And this idea people will sometimes, you know, it's like, don't you worry, you know, like what about the athletes? And it's like the athletes get screwed over pretty badly. Like, up, I don't yeah. know. If heard Olympic athlete stories, like they're pretty much just machines That's right. for people to make they're, money. Off they're disposable. They're disposable, just like the people on the streets that are being swept away. Right. That, yeah, totally. It's like as long as long as they are making money for corporate sponsors. Um, if you look at the in a, like uh, Scott Blackman, who is the former disgraced uh, CEO of the United States Olympics Committee, so the national. Uh, you know, there's the International Olympics Committee, and then there's different national committees, and then local organizing committees. So he's so that's anyway, the very important role. He he was basically getting like multi million dollar raises every year up until when he was forced to resign. He was involved in the the cover up of um, of Larry Nassar, the doctor who was abusing uh, and sexually assaulting female gymnasts, mm. and so. So while he was doing that, he was getting multi-million dollar pay raises while a lot of these gymnasts like couldn't afford to eat. Yeah. So, so what I'm, yeah, I guess that this is changing my thinking a little bit. You know, what I'm, what I'm hearing is that it's not so much that like moving around really isn't the big deal. The big deal is that the whole process is corrupt and, um, you know, in the pocket of like big real estate and this IOC, the, the International Olympic Committee, is that what it is? Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that? How is it structured and like who put them in charge of it and how might you reform it maybe? <laughs> um, they put the problem, themselves please. in charge. <laughs> they put themselves in charge. They they are headquartered. FIFA and um, the IOC are both headquartered in Lausanne, Switzerland. So it's a classic. it's a tax haven. Super classic. Um, I don't. My personal. I don't. I don't think you can reform the IOC. If you look at who's part of it, how it's operated for you know over a hundred years. Um, it's it's not really reformable. And some of that is because just the people who are involved are not accountable to anyone except themselves. Right. So it's it's like maybe that would you say like a good analogy to like the NCAA or something like like these people, like people who just sort of like impose that they sort of set up this event that got a ton of attention and then therefore money. And then now they're sort of the keystone players and they've just been exploiting that to the hilt. And then I would guess sort of engaging in you know sort of corrupt backroom dealings with the developers and so on around the world is that a like reasonably accurate picture yeah i mean if you look at who so the ioc the the founder of the modern olympics was this guy um pierre de coubertin who was a, a french baron um and the ioc historically has been made up of nobility it's still i think around like 10 percent <laughs> of the people on the who are members of the ioc are from royal families so like the crown prince of denmark is a member of the ioc um how many were on the epstein plane <laughs> That's what I want to know. Actually, so well, I mean, no joke. The uh, the chair of the LA organizing committee. I knew it. Um, who's in was was on the Epstein plane. Why yeah. are the they're, these pervert? Why Just, the, the no. violence and the perversion and the greed? Every billionaire is a policy failure, and pretty yeah. much every billionaire is on is in Epstein's black book. You know that that's you you're you more than half right. It seems like. Um, yeah, I had to eat crow a little bit recently because I was in a meeting where I, I made some sort of like offhand comment. So after uh, Epstein got arrested, 
Casey Wasserman is the name of the, the chair of the organizing committee. He's the one who was on the Epstein plane. Um, I should also mention, speaking of like athletes, he he represents a lot of really prominent female athletes, including Megan Rapinoe. He's a sports agent and like sports marketing agent. Mm. Um, so it's also it's continues to be bizarre that people aren't like connecting those dots. He makes a lot of money off of like female empowerment, quote unquote. Um, but after Epstein was arrested, he kind of like went on social media lockdown. He stopped making public appearances, coming to meetings. He was laying very low. And I made an offhand comment a couple of weeks ago about, I was like, oh, I don't think we can expect to see him out and about anytime soon. And then he proved me wrong by, um, by holding a public press conference with Donald Trump uh, and flirting with him for two hours and talking about how excited he was for the Department of Homeland Security to come in and help clean up homelessness and all this other awful stuff. Wonderful. Yeah, the 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 perversion and and the the rapists and the fascists are all you know parading publicly without any shame, um, mm -mm. financed by all the developers who don't care because they help them profit. Yeah, it's it's sad. and then and then the media who are mm -hmm. connected. To developers mm -hmm. and you know but you see you see and the real threat here is uh health for all because that's what's going to execute chris matthews in central park that's that's the danger <laughs> you see yeah that's what keeps me up at night the status quo is safe and does no harm and we don't want to rock the boat with all the the fascism and rape and uh and violence but you know social democracy democratic socialism terrifying completely terrifying but this, you know, may, maybe if the IOC is like irredeemably, you know, like structurally broken beyond like repair, could you imagine a more, you know, like a sort of United Nations type of of uh, Olympics or Olympics style thing where it was like, you know, uh, you know, every every country sent in a representative or something like that and 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 all the. All the profits were, you know, insofar as like there are any sort of sponsorships or whatever, like that just gets goes into a, you know, publicly visible pot. And yeah, it's how like do we socialize out. it? How do we democratize yeah. it? Yeah. Check out check out this video and kind of like our brief history. And then if there's ones that are interesting, like look into them. Um, the yeah. Barcelona games were not the only ones, but this is definitely that's been done before. Cool. And I think and there's definitely people whose interests it serves to make us think that the only way that we can have international sporting competition is with all of these other things. And it's like, no, we can just have international sporting competition the same way we can have public transit without inviting. Oh, I'll also say another member of the IOC worth noting is Henry Kissinger. Um, Noted so, friend of Hillary Clinton. Good guy. Yeah. Great guy. Great guy. Um, yeah, great athlete, too. You look at him just in absolutely top form. He... He gets paid. If you look at all the pictures of him at the Olympics, he's like passed out in the stands. He can like barely, you know, keep his like he, he always looks a little bit like a reanimated corpse to me. <laughs> um, and he gets paid more to sleep through Olympic events than American athletes get paid to compete in them. Wonderful. <sighs> Very depressing. Wonderful. Very depressing. And I'm curious about the because you talked about disaster capitalism and the spectacle. And we had, boy, this was a long time ago. One of our first guests, um, philosopher Brad Evans, had written a book with Henry Giroux uh, called uh, Disposable Futures. And a lot of that had to do with a very interesting and sad way that people are just disposed of. And basically, in the midst of all this harm, 
the 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 theater, the entertainment, the the violence is um, somehow papered over through spectacle, and 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 I'm very intrigued by how the Olympics are functioning in a similar way. You have kind of the militarization, but also the entertainment as a way to not only hide all the harm, but to say, no, no, this is good. What we're doing here, this is good, and you should be proud of it, and it's a national pride thing. Uh, maybe talk even a bit more about that intersection of, of nationalism, fascism, and, and uh, neoliberalism. Yeah, I think the spectacle is really important. The visuals and the aesthetics uh, have also been like a key lever um, for folks in power to enact these really violent things um, upon entire communities. One thing that, you know, we always point out about the Olympics, there's this thing referred to as the clean city provision uh, in the host city contract, which basically... Um, commits the host city to providing what's what's known as a clean city, mm. um, but which which ostensibly like the most direct implication of that is to to basically create a monopoly for co- corporate sponsors. Um, so like no competing brands can like be present in the city other than the corporate sponsors, um, but also will then inevitably extend to. Um, other things that would contradict, quote unquote, cleanliness, uh, which includes visible poverty, um, informal economies, uh, sex work, political dissent is a big one. And the IOC recently just came out and uh, and kind of really brutally quashed any form of political dissent from athletes and said, made it very clear, like if athletes engage in anything like kneeling, like raising fists, that they will not be able to compete. Wow. Uh, yeah, F- free speech, you know, live and well. Very unclean, that free speech. The only threat there is uh, college students who uh, want to yell at Christine Hoff Summers. Um, so t- tell us about the, the, the people in, uh, like, the Los Angeles political system who are sort of pushing this 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 turd. And, um, you know, what's what's their story? I know the mayor is involved. Um, mm-hmm. but what, what's their story and, uh, what is your kind of strategy for, uh, confronting them? Yeah. So the, um, you know, the mayor super involved, the mayor has this really, I find it, embar- I find a lot of what he says embarrassing, but what's this his name? anecdote, his Eric- name is Eric Garcetti. Right. He, you know, there's a lot of political dynasties at play in LA. I was going to say Garcetti, Garcetti sounds so familiar. Was he? Connected to the LAP, LAPD family, or yes, okay. yes, yeah. His father was Gil Garcetti, right. who was the he was the district attorney of Los Angeles, who basically his political career ended after the OJ Simpson trial. Right. Yep. Um, and then so Eric Garcetti was kind of the like elevated, you know, fail son. Like you will carry on my legacy. He he had he did this weird thing earlier this year where he held a big press conference to announce that he wasn't running for president. Um, <laughs> He recently appeared in a he's become a campaign surrogate for Joe Biden. Um, of course. And, of course. And, and post these like amazing lazy videos. That's just like him hanging out, saying nothing inspiring about how much he loves Joe Biden. And in the most recent one, he had a sorry, I'm like spending a lot of time on this, but it's so wild to me. He put if you look at the video, there's a, a plate in the foreground. He's like at a desk and then there's a plate and there's a you guys are in new york so you'll get this there's a black and white cookie on the plate and it's cut into strips (laughs) 
we're in Philly, actually. So maybe we. Oh, you're in Philly. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Is that like a <laughs> Blue Lives Matter flag or something? What I don't get it. It's, I don't know. It felt like a dog whistle to me. There's something like so chilling about that cookie. Uh, anyway, so Eric Garcetti may be one of the like least in touch people. Um, yeah, from like born into the ruling class uh, and and into a police family in particular, he he has bragged this like embarrassing story that he has about how his first act in office was to write to to I believe Joe Biden and then to the U.S. Olympics Committee, the the same ones I mentioned earlier who were covering up you know sex abuse, um, to write to them and say you know I want Olympics to host. I, I want Los Angeles to host the Olympics, which is like, if you're the mayor that came into office campaigning to end homelessness, like, why are you bragging that your first act was to do this thing that has not like he's he yeah, he has no connection or sense of what anybody's life. In and the city. Why, why today are the fascist rapists so stupid and embarrassing? There is something weird going on, right? Like they're like, the, with, you know, it, all the harm is very real, but they're like cookies involved. And like, you know, like, <laughs> like it's like a circus, you know, I don't know. I mean, these buffoons are somehow in charge of the, the global economy that's that's causing tremendous violence and harm. There seems to be some relationship between their stupidity, their buffoonery, and um, and all the the violence. Is that what what's going on here? Do you think? Well, it's here's I, someone who um, an, an organizer here in LA who I really admire and have learned a lot from, um, who runs the uh, the blog uh, MichaelCoolhouse.org, uh, which basically tracks a lot of the through public records requests the communications of elected officials. Once said to me, he was like, "Never attribute stupidity to your enemy's actions," or like something like that. And it was just a good reminder. Like sometimes I'll see things like that, and I'll be like, "How could they be?" So so stupid and then you scratch the surface a little bit and sometimes it's really hard to tell if it's stupid or evil but a lot of times then you'll be like oh it seems really stupid but actually they were trying to do something like actually incredibly right um evil and violent and that the you olympic know, stories have, my, my, have brought that. my best oh, sorry go ahead no no just my, <laughs> my best theory is that they're they're not stupid in the sense that like they're very consistently narcissistic and um, self-interested. So they're very good about figuring out what's in their own interest in terms of power and wealth and aggrandizement. But like, because they've made that the end and purpose of their life, they're fucking buffoons in every other aspect, right? Right. They're, they're just mm -hmm. um, solely concerned with this, you know, vapid, vacuous, terrible way of being, um, such that they might be good at getting those things for themselves and helping others serve those interests, but um, but they can be completely stupid in every other way. Oh yeah, I think what feels more stupid is when they they sort of put some of this stuff out on display, and it's kind of like, well, how did you think that was going to go? Like, yeah, yeah. Have you have you talked to another human being? Well, I guess that's part of their privilege, of your... right? That they're part of their privilege is they they can fuck up all they want and they keep getting rewarded anyway. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, so Casey Wasserman and Eric Garcetti, they both, they grew up together. They have all of these, again, very embarrassing stories about how as teenagers, they had such an amazing experience at the Olympics. And it's like, yeah, of course you had an amazing experience at the 1984 Olympics. <laughs> One of your dads was the most powerful cop in this, in the county. Yeah. Uh, and then your the other one is the grandson of the chairman of MGM and like the California democratic party, they got to run in the torch relay with OJ Simpson, um, before <laughs> Eric Garcetti's, you know, whatever, like, it's like, yeah, of course you had a great time. You talk to other people in Los Angeles about their experience of the 1984 Olympics who don't come from like cloistered wealthy communities and, you know, the Hollywood Hills and like Santa Monica and Beverly Hills. And those people's memories of the Olympics and communities like in South Central and East LA are like, oh, the policing was brutal. They just like put everyone in jail. Yeah, I mean, it It feels to me kind of like late Romanov dynasty or, or late France ancien regime type of be like people who are just, you know, maybe they're not stupid uh, necessarily, but they are incapable of seeing things other than from their own very narrow uh, point of view. And, you know, maybe... Uh, uh, e- seeing the kind of rebellion boiling up underneath their feet due to their own actions um, and stoking it. And and this maybe gets, you know, back, back to my original question there that, uh, you know, what's the, what's the play here? Do, you know, do you have a sort of like uh, a strategy here to, to, to block this sucker in terms of, you know, putting pressure on, on elected officials or trying to primary people or like, what's, what's the move? Right now, the move is to, and this is my like personal political philosophy for most things in general, but is to really to organize people in their communities and build a base of popular resistance. Whatever the specific tactic is and path is to stopping them, like that's right. where it starts from. Nice, that's yeah. great. And is that working well with DSA? Like, how 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 are um, how is this kind of working with other? leftist mobilization and organization efforts just generally like is it coordinated or how how do you guys work together yeah so basically so um just to give a brief history no olympics la is a working group of dsa and we're also a coalition um so we formed in kind of the the weird like wild west explosion of dsa in 2017 um where we were like the way that dsa was structured was very much based on this sort of older you know like previous situation in which there weren't as many active members um and then membership exploded there were new possibilities um I'm so I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning. I'm a member of the Los Angeles Tenants Union, um, which was one of the first, uh, you know, organizations that signed on and joined the coalition. Uh, and the way that we came up with is like a lot of the existing groups organizing in different areas around L.A. geographically and around sort of different focuses or issues that were picking up certain battles saw the Olympics as a major threat to whatever it was that they were doing, whether it was um you know, environmental justice, housing, policing, um, criminalization of homelessness, everyone was kind of like, oh, this, this is going to fuck us. Um, and so really what forming it through DSA did was allowed us to give it that formal shape. Um, there was deep anti-Olympic sentiment among progressive and leftist groups in LA. I would say more leftist than progressive. There are definitely a lot of like progressive centrist groups who, who are still in the sort of like, Oh, let's just like fix them a little bit. Right. Um, 
but definitely on the left. And so, so yeah, so it's a coalition. Um, and so our group is, I would say at this point, maybe like 50% DSA members and then 50% members of like other groups in terms of who actively organizes. Have you found that you've radicalized either the other groups or just whoever you're talking to about the Olympics or have, have the Olympics helped you promote social housing or, or make targeted, um, efforts on behalf of whether it's social housing or rent control or or other things in terms of actual victories or, or, or things people are now on board to fight for? Uh, I hope so. Um, I've definitely seen conversations about the Olympics be really effective just as a starting point, just because it's so obvious to most people who live here, even if they're not sort of, even if at the beginning of the conversation, they're not really radicalized, they're not on board with something like social housing, like to just, we're the main um, kind of like active organizing campaign that we're running right now is called Homes Not Hotels, specifically targeting hotel driven displacement. Um, we saw recently too the uh, the Olympics have announced a corporate sponsorship with Airbnb, um, so that's kind of being you know we're factoring that into the campaign, and so we canvas a few times a month, um, and when we're canvassing, so basically just out talking to tenants in Los Angeles. Nobody wants the Olympics. Everyone thinks they're stupid. Their their own personal analysis, in some cases, they kind of start from a similar place to us. In other cases, they're sort of pointing to just like, this seems like a big waste. And then that's the entry point to have a conversation about really anything else and to go towards like, yeah, what should we be doing instead? If this city was going to spend $8 billion on something else, what would you want to see? Um, And that's, that's a really good framework and starting point to have a conversation about, you know, what is the positive thing that we want to build? And you would think that, I mean, California is perhaps the key state for Bernie Sanders in terms of winning the the nomination. So it seems like there'd be plenty of people possibly amenable to a, a more leftist future. And, and what, what might lo, you know, politics look like for you um, under a Bernie administration? Do you think that would be a, a real boon to, to organizing? I hope so. I mean, it's so hard. Everything feels so like <laughs> wild yeah. at this point. It's real. I was just at a, a, a friend's house and she was asking me, she was like, what do you think is going to happen? And I was like, I genuinely have no idea, but um, I mean, that's the the role of the federal administration and the Olympics in particular, like they, the federal administration plays a huge role. I think something that feels different to me about Bernie Sanders candidacy, and I'll say too, just up front, I'm not really a big electoral politics person. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I do, I support Bernie. I just, uh, I just voted today, which was exciting. Um, but what feels really different about his candidacy is not not even like his his policy obviously feels much further left than a lot of candidates. But as he says himself, it's like not actually radical. Right. <laughs> um, it's right. not even as radical as I would ideally like it to be. But the way that the way that his campaign has mobilized people has been the most inspiring thing to me. Um, seeing people in my community, um, friends of mine who have not been politically active, who have sort of been like, you know, Facebook, like, like shared their political views on Facebook. But then I, I've personally struggled to like bring them into actual organizing work. This campaign is inspiring people to do that uh, in ways that I think are really cool. And it also seems like, like his campaign and he is actually accountable to people, right. like seeing the ways in which he's responded and changed certain positions or the, the campaign has shifted. And I've seen this in California and particularly based on what 
what the like people in the community say has I've never seen that before. Yeah. No, it's encouraging. Um, uh, I guess, you know, may, maybe a, a last question for me, at least, uh, what, what is the, uh, kind of decision-making process here? You know, I, I, from what I understand, it's not set in stone yet, right? Like, like the whole bid process hasn't been confirmed. Is that correct? Well, here's the thing. So I actually, I love that you guys, I was going to say something early on. That's something we're, we're trying to make it clear that things are not set in stone. Um, the way that things are being framed again by the ruling class is like, well, the IOC held up a paper at their, <laughs> they have this, this is also speaking of like weird fascist legacies from, from Hitler and the Berlin games. They, the IOC, they have, um, where they, you know, quote unquote, award the Olymp the right to host the Olympics to cities is at this annual meeting they have, which is called the session. Um, and they basically will like commandeer, you know, like an island or whatever, and then they'll have like the session. Yeah, little St. James. It's yeah, it's totally wild. So anyway, they had the session a couple of years ago and they awarded um, Paris for 2024 and L.A. for 2028. They are completely making shit up as they go. The Olympics are historically unpopular. Um, they've never awarded games two at a time like that. They've never awarded games this far in advance the way that they did with L.A. They're kind of flailing. And it's just a good reminder. It's like we talk about what does it mean for the Olympics to be confirmed and for them to be set in stone, they're never set in stone. Like the IOC can do whatever they want at any time. They make the rules up as they go along. Um, and I think like the Amazon decision is a really powerful reminder of that. Like yeah. that's another aspect where, you know, I, I heard someone say after that, and I think this is the same message that we want to make clear with the Olympics is like, just because a bunch of rich people had a private conversation and decided that something was going to happen to our city, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, so the, the overall goal here would be for the L.A. city government uh, by hook or by crook to say, sorry, sorry, IOC, go go pound sand. You know that we're not doing it here. End of discussion. Or the IOC could say it. The IOC right. could say we're not interested in right. LA anymore. Yeah, and it is eight years from now. Like there's plenty of <laughs> agitation. You know, to well, be done. like it's not like the you know the the, the like you're 97 percent of the way through all the construction or whatever. Like that's two entire presidential administrations. Um, yep. so, so that's promising. What what else can people do? What what's a you know a good thing to end on? And we'll link to anything you want, but. Um, you know, how can people help fight this fight and just maybe promote um, working for all the various social goods that you're working for? Yeah, I would just organize locally, like look at what's happening in your community, look for um, autonomous groups. So not organizing outside of the, you know, the nonprofit structure, um, depending on where you are. So whether that's a group like DSA or um, if there is an autonomous tenants union where you live or, or any similar group that is that is really similar, you know, to what I was saying about the Sanders campaign, like actually accountable to people and not right. to funders. Um, see what kind of organized talk to your neighbors, like talk to your neighbors, because um, whatever I, I think the big shift that I would like to see in my lifetime, which feels like it's starting to change is um, 
you know, shifting consciousness away from this sort of like liberal activisty, like what's your issue? Yep. Um, and recognizing that like people deal with every issue, like you can't separate things out. And so, yeah, really like local organizing, building power within your community and within your neighbors, because then whatever it is, whether it's Amazon HQ2, whether it's the Olympics, whether it's a you know bullshit electoral candidate or measure, you can fight that. Fantastic. Yeah, we're, we're on board with that. We try to do that here in Philly and uh, power to the yeah. people. We're, we're with you. Um, oh, yeah. Any, any other uh, thoughts you have or any work you know, that, you know, any writing you've done that you want to talk about or. Yeah. Mention sure. Before you let you go. Yeah. So I think um, I would definitely recommend, uh, you know, we have a, a recent blog post that's up about, um, about the Trump's visit to LA and kind of what that reveals. I feel like that's a real turning point just because it's something we've sort of known for a while. And that, that's one of those moments of like saying the quiet parts out loud. Like you can look at like, you know, the department of Homeland secretary was on stage saying, we're going to use the full force of our department to address immigration in Los Angeles for the Olympics. And, um, just like came out and said it, uh, any of the stuff that we've written and I can't really take credit for this, you know, Johnny Coleman, uh, my co-chair and uh, organizing partner, uh, and as well as some other folks are, who are media workers have also really stressed the need for independent media. Um, so in addition to thinking about like autonomous organizing also, you know, what are the stories that are being told and, and kind of media literacy, um, because seeing, seeing the way, <laughs> maybe this is kind of a dark note to end on, um, well, I'll start dark and I'll, I'll get lighter. <laughs> um, looking at the media landscape in LA, we have one Los Angeles, second biggest city in the United States. We have one newspaper. Yeah. Uh, it is, it is owned by one of the 59 billionaires that I mentioned earlier. Um, and that unsurprisingly affects how things are covered and what gets covered um, and what information gets shared publicly and what narratives are pushed. Um, and that's, that's really important to like looking at and supporting places that will tell those stories that will talk to people who are not covered. Um, yeah. Like Bernie was in Los Angeles a few months ago and did this huge rally in Venice. And it was kind of, it was a little bit mind blowing. Like I knew, I thought they were going to pull some like BS, like how they framed it or something. And they just like, didn't touch it. It was like, it never yeah, it didn't cover it at all. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The blackout. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of great, like we, we have a blog, one of our, um, one of our members who's also a researcher and who's lived in a few other Olympic cities. Um, and this is also part of the transnational organizing effort, uh, is I hope I'm not blowing, <laughs> blowing her launch public launch plans for this, but, um, has a, a site up called Olympic watch and is starting to publish things from organizers in Olympic cities around the world. Uh, because something that we learned when we were in Tokyo is just because of the nature of these media narratives, even the ones that are more sympathetic or positive or, you know, that we like, um, they generally don't capture the point of view of the people who are directly affected. Um, and in particular people who are really poor. Uh, I read a lot of stories in the lead up to going to Japan about the, the folks who were displaced twice, um, once for the 64 Olympics in Tokyo and who were displaced again for the 2020 Olympics. I didn't know until we were like about to leave for Tokyo that those folks live in public housing and that's why they got displaced. That was like not mentioned in any of the pieces, um, yep. as part of the 
analysis. Um, and it was like, oh, this is not just unlucky. or th And that gets into the whole like stupidity versus evil. Like what an unfortunate coincidence. It's like, oh no, there's a, that was intentional. Right, like these right. are the most people in the city who are living on what's now like valuable real estate. And so of course their, their homes are going to be the ones that are demolished. And of course it's the same within that short of a time period, it's the same people. Um, so yeah, so looking, looking at some of those other media sources for stories, like where you can and when you can uplifting, uplifting things that are, that feature, um, organizers and community members as protagonists and not just victims. Absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, th I mean, thank you for providing the light at the end there with, with the organizers who are fighting the good fight and the fact that if we educate each other and expose each other to um, these, these sites of struggle, these different organizations, both media and activist, that, that we can, you know, we can do this thing. We can make socialism um, what, what controls the future and, uh, and have socialism as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks so much. Yeah. For everything that you guys are doing. And thanks again for having me on. Been a pleasure. Yeah. We'll link to all that stuff in the description and Orchier. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on. We'll yeah. see you later. See you later.